So, yeah, as Cassie was singing that one song at the very beginning, I just, whenever we sing about the resurrection, I just get a little like, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I just start getting very emotional. So I think that's what's going on in my head right now. So I apologize for that. But, but let's jump in. Uh, I want to start with a quote from uh, Fleming Rutledge. She's, a, she's an author and Episcopal priest. And I have this quote on the slide. It says, as many theologians have pointed out, the church lives in Advent, the time between. We stand in a dark place, no question about it. In fact, the entire Christian life in this world is lived in Advent, between the first and second comings of the Lord. In the midst of the tension between things the way they are and things the way they ought to be. It's that last line that really stands out to me, that we live our lives in the midst of the tension between things the way they are and things the way they ought to be. This was absolutely the reality for the people living in Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel during the time of Isaiah. Isaiah was issuing a warning to the people of Judah that judgment was coming. The northern kingdom of Israel was on the brink of collapse, and that same threat was bearing down on the southern kingdom of Judah. Both King Uzziah and Jotham were dead, and now King Ahaz was on the throne. And according to 2 Kings 16 and, and Isaiah chapter 7 through 8, Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was a bad king. And the nation was living in what Isaiah describes as thick darkness. It's amid this reality that the people of God are issued a promise that the gloom and anguish of exile would not be forever. And so the story of the faithful living during this season of darkness, and we know there were some who remained faithful. The text alludes to that throughout those first chapters in Isaiah. It's a story that all of us can draw strength and encouragement from. We too are living through seasons of darkness in the midst of the tension between things the way they are and things the way they ought to be. Now, some of that darkness is just the consequence of living in a sinful world and culture that tries to convince us that the weapons, tools, and practices of the enemy are the means to human flourishing, to satisfaction. For some of us, it's personal darkness, a failing marriage, a struggling relationship, or the subtle and not-so-subtle reminders of our own mortality. Many of us are just frustrated by sinful habits that we just can't seem to break. Whatever it is, the promises will work through this morning. They offer us hope. The hope of Isaiah's Emmanuel, God with us, that though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we are not alone. That's the wonder of Advent. That's the wonder of Christmas. That's the wonder of our every day as followers of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah 9. And as always, we'll work through some context to kind of gain our footing. So very quickly, Isaiah 9, as you're getting there, it's part of a larger section that highlights the promise that amid the chaos of good kings dying, bad kings reigning, and foreign kings bearing down and threatening, God's covenant remains secure. 
God's covenant remains secure. The text that we're going to be looking at, chapter 9, verse 1, it begins with this adversative conjunction. We're going to talk a little grammar this morning, right? Why not? That little word, but, which tells us from jump that what we're about to read, it stands in opposition or in contrast to what was just talked about. So if we rewind a little bit, we'll see that Isaiah 8 tells the story of the coming invasion of Assyria, and the chapter closes with a scene of despair. Verses 21 through 22 in chapter 8 read like this. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. A couple of things. Look at what the people are experiencing, right? Distress, darkness, gloom, anguish. Thick darkness? What in the world? What's thick darkness? Well, that phrase, it would have reminded the people of the ninth plague that Yahweh poured out onto Egypt, the enemy of God's people. And so there is this sense that the people of God are being identified, lumped in with the enemies of God. It's also the same language that we read in Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death of thick darkness. So one scholar argues that the prevailing motif or pattern is, in fact, darkness. And I agree, a darkness was overtaking the people of God, but instead of running from it, people were reveling in it. But something shifts. Chapter 9, verse 1, But there will be no gloom for her who who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nation. So there's reversal taking place here. What was once darkness, distress, and gloom will one day be glorious. But check it out. The text doesn't say will one day be glorious. He says he has made glorious. That's important. The reason why that's important is because one is future tense and one is the perfect tense, right? So, so we're going to talk grammar again, right? Aren't you guys excited that you came to church this morning? He made glorious. He has made glorious. The tense of the verbs matter here. Let me explain. Isaiah is using the perfect tense of the verb, meaning that he is describing this future age of restoration as though it has already occurred. You tracking with that? He's describing this future age of restoration as though it has already occurred. Some grammarians describe this as the prophetic perfect. The prophetic perfect. That the reality of the future is so secure that it's described as already taking place. Which means that the hearer should respond by living as if this future event has already happened. Now, I want to kind of sidetrack for a second. On the first Sunday of Advent, our Anglican sisters and brothers, they, they pray a prayer like this, and I have a slide for it. It says, Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness 
and put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your son Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Now one, that's just a beautiful prayer. But more importantly, that prayer is asking God for the grace to cast away the works of darkness. Works that are marked by the gloom and thick darkness of this present reality we're all living in. Works marked by the age of death, this mortal life. And it's asking for that grace while simultaneously looking to the promises of the age to come. In other words, it's a prayer asking for the grace to live in the present through the strength and power of the age to come. Did you catch that? It's a prayer asking for the grace to live in the present through the strength and power of the age to come. That's what we're going to be talking about primarily this morning. Let's keep reading. Verses 2 through 3. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Again, all those positive verbs. Seen a great light. On them light shined. Multiplied the nation. The increase of joy and the rejoicing. The rejoicing. They are all in the perfect tense. I told you. Grammar this morning. Which means... All of it is being communicated as if it has already occurred. That prophetic perfect we just talked about. In other words, Isaiah is speaking into the darkness a message of hope. For those with ears to hear and eyes to see. That faithful remnant clinging to the promises of God. Alec Matier, Old Testament scholar, he says it like this. And I got a quote. As the people of God... I actually love this quote. This is such a helpful category for us. As the people of God, we must decide what reading of our experiences we will live by. Are we to look at the darkness, the hopelessness, our dreams shattered and conclude that God has forgotten us? Or are we to recall his past mercies, to remember his present promises, and to make great affirmations of faith? Isaiah insists that hope is a present reality, part of the constitution of the now. The darkness is true, but it is not the whole truth and certainly not the fundamental truth. Did you catch that? How incredible is that? The darkness is true, but it's not the whole truth and certainly not the fundamental truth. Assyria is bearing down on Judah. Zebulun and Naphtali were actually the first territories of the northern kingdom to be overtaken, a sharp reminder of Judah's coming fate. Good kings from the throne of David were dead and buried. I mean, some of us might be fearful of where our own nation and culture is heading. Or maybe our fears are wrapped up in a health concern. Some of us have strained relationships. All of us are walking through all sorts of valleys. All these circumstances, the darkness and the pain, it's all true. 
It's all true. Every single thing that we walk through, all of that pain, all of that frustration, all of that anguish, all of that darkness, it is true. I'm not sitting here telling you that what you're feeling, what you're experiencing, what you're walking through, that, it, that it's not real. No, no, no. Scripture very much says, yes, that is what you're going through, 100%. I don't want to minimize that pain. In fact, I believe with all my heart that we are called to cry out to God in that pain. Pray those prayers of lament. But in the words of Matir, our pain and our suffering, they're not the whole truth. And certainly not the fundamental truth. Which means there's still a place for worship. Even for those of us who are hurting. And Advent reminds us of that because the darkness... It cannot snuff out the reality of Jesus' coming. That's so important. That is something we got to cling to. It doesn't negate the pain. It doesn't even remove the pain. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that dude's walking through the valley. Like he's in it, he feels it, he's experiencing it, that thick, deep darkness. But he says, I know God is with me. I know God is with me. See, the thing about our faith, there is not a single time in the scriptures where we are promised on this side of glory that things are going to be easy. There's no promise of that. There's no promise of that. In fact, we're promised quite the contrary, that actually we will endure suffering. We will experience pain. But the beauty of this thing we call Christianity is that God is with us. God is with us. The one who spoke creation into existence, the one who, who, who sustains creation, he cares deeply for us. Like, that's how personal it is. And that's such good, good news. And it's news that every single one of us needs because we are all walking through it. That's just real. And maybe you're not walking through it today, but I bet yesterday you did, and I guarantee tomorrow you will, right? Right? And that's the point that our text is driving at. There are former times, and for some of us, we're living in those former times. But the latter time, the future, it's coming. And in the mind of the prophet, it's already here. It's already here. Now, this is key. Like I just said, Isaiah is not proposing that we simply look on the bright side of things or that we should find a silver lining. There are actually reasons undergirding the rejoicing of verses 2 through 3, the hope that we can have during our suffering. And verses 4 through 6, they provide us with those reasons. They all begin with these for statements or these because statements that provide those reasons. Again, grammar matters when you're reading the Bible. But let's look at those first two, verses four through five. Check it out. For, or because the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For, or because every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. 
This is good news. To hear news like this as you're staring down the barrel of national disaster, it is cause for rejoicing. Like, I know it looks bleak, but there is hope. And the hope rests in these three verses, verses 4, 5, and 6. So again, we got to remember that prophetic perfect. Ahaz is currently on the throne in Judah, which means that Hezekiah has yet to ascend the throne. He was a good king which also means that the exile has not even happened yet, at least for Judah. So that thick darkness, that oppression that Judah will experience, it's all in the future, which also means that the latter time of verse 1, the great light, the multiplication of the nation, and the increased joy, that's also a part of the latter time, even further in the future. What's the point? So aside from the very choppy and maybe even confusing history lesson that I just gave, the overwhelmingly clear message that Isaiah is trying to communicate to us is one, judgment is 100% coming. God's people have not been faithful, and so he's dealing with it. Two, dealing with it for God does not mean going back on his promises, okay? That's so important. Dealing with it for God does not mean going back on his promises. He's using this judgment to purify his remnant. If you're listening closely, You should be able to hear the song of God's grace playing faintly in the background. While the coming judgment is a reality for the people, that song of God's grace is promising a future time when the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations will be made glorious. And the way that path becomes glorious is through a work that can only be accomplished by God. Look at verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 tells us that God will break that God will break all that the enemy uses to oppress his people. And then verse 5 tells us that the garments of war, that's what's going on here, right? It says, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. He's telling us that the garments of war will be tossed into the fire to be burned. What's the point? Yes, judgment's coming. But Israel's future is so secure that it's being communicated as though it's already happened. It's mysteriously present. So much so that it's defining how they are to engage their present. It's defining how they ought to engage their present. And that's the crux of the matter. Not that, oh, that's so cool that one day we're going to be, you know, freed from all this stuff. One day we're going to be just floating on clouds, which is not true. Um, And one day we're going to just experience all that is good in the world. Like, yeah, those are true things, aside from the floating on clouds thing. Those are all true things. But if it does not have any impact on the present, then we're doing it wrong. Then we're doing it wrong. The future has to define our present. It just has to. Let's keep going. And so, so this security of what is coming, the reason why it's so secure and why it's being communicated as though it has already happened has everything to do with that final for or because statement in verse 6 undergirding the hope of this passage. A hope that all of us, even today, can have access to even while we travel through the thick darkness of our own exile. And, and to kind of like jump to the side for a second, there's a key point for us to wrestle with here. 
Like I said, Judah is on the brink of exile. But the New Testament, it seems to suggest that we're actually in the thick of exile. In the words of Peter, the church is described as elect exiles living all over the world, which means that we too are living through the darkness of today with the reality of tomorrow secured and mysteriously present. One theologian, Christopher Walken, argues that the coming day of the Lord, its future, defines our present and defines what sort of lives we are to live right now. And maybe it's more helpful to say redefining the sort of lives we're called to live right now because so much of how our lives have been shaped by the present darkness, it's just so deeply embedded in us, right? It's so just a matter of like our vernacular. Like we just live just so engrossed in our exile. And so, so it actually does require some work for the way we live to be reshaped and, and redefined. And the future that Isaiah is pointing to, the one that he's calling the remnant of Judah to redefine themselves by, is one where the yokes and burdens of their oppressors are eclipsed by the coming birth of a child, a son upon whose shoulders the government will rest upon. Matir observes that in verse 4, their shoulders are released from burdens when this child shoulders the burden of rule and reign. Like there's a reversal taking place. And this is even that stuff like I, I believe that Jesus is hinting at in the Gospels when he says, take my yoke, my burden upon yourself. Like, don't carry the yoke and burden of, of exile. In fact, that, that term yoke, it has everything to do with the slavery that the people of, 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 of Israel were experiencing in Egypt. And the New Testament constantly refers back to it. It's like, don't carry that yoke of slavery. Don't continue to, to have yourself, yourself chained to, to that, that former way of life. I've set you free. I've set you free that so you can walk in a manner that is worthy with the calling that has been placed upon us. That's such good news. That's such good news. But, but we're similar to Israel. Like, we, we always kind of want to go back to Egypt, right? We're like, oh, no, they fed us good food there, right? Where am I at here? So who is this child? Let's read. Let's read verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given. And as Ellie Post pointed out later, we can just start singing as we read those words, right? Because it's just, never mind. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Right? He is the Wonderful Counselor. That word wonder is used throughout the Psalms to talk about the works of God. And that word counselor refers to the plans and purposes of God. So, so that's what's being ascribed to this child. He is mighty God and everlasting father. Mighty is a military reference used to describe a man of valor. While father draws our attention to God's concern for the helpless, his care for and discipline of his people. And finally, he is prince of peace which means that the future reality, the hope of tomorrow that is mysteriously present for today, it's actually redefining our understanding of things like military might, power, and authority. It matters that these things are all 
lump together these names that are ascribed to this child. Yes, there is a military um, sort of might that this child possesses, but, but he's prince of peace. Right? Those are, like, they feel contradictory, right? There's a point there. There's a point there. The future reality, it, it redefines and it reshapes the Christian imagination so that we are not, as we've said before, picking up the weapons of the enemy to try and accomplish the plans and purposes of God. Yes, this son is described as this military leader, but he is prince of peace, which means he doesn't accomplish this, this coming age through, through violence. He doesn't accomplish this coming age through, through like, the, the killing and murder. That's not how he does it. He does it how, right? Like, on a cross, on a cross, right? We talked about this last week, that even in Revelation 5, it says that he heard the sound of a lion, but when he turned and looked, he saw what? A lamb that had been slain. Again, this, this, this Christian story that we are wrapping ourselves up into, that we are caught up into, that we are participating with, it is fundamentally different than the way this world functions. And it's, and it's trying to reshape and redefine our imaginations, our way of thinking, so that we might be an extension of that in the world. Now, now check this out. This is wild, because we, we don't talk a ton about politics here. We often say at Redeemer that we're neither left nor right in our approach to politics, but that doesn't mean that Christianity is not political. You actually can't read a passage like this and believe that the gospel is apolitical, but notice how the Bible does politics. It's important. Judah's on the brink of national disaster, one where foreign leaders serving foreign gods will be ruling and reigning over them. But Isaiah challenges that present reality with the truth of Emmanuel, God with us. Right? Sure, for us, it might feel like our nation and culture are collapsing all around us, but what does God say? Because for them, their nation and their culture was collapsing all around them. And the message wasn't take up arms. The message was, Emmanuel, God is with you. So what that means is that our future is secure. And so the message of Isaiah is live that way. Verse 6 tells us that the security of their future rests in the birth of a child. Now, we know that child is Jesus, right? There's no, like, aha moment. Then we'd be like, and it's, like, we know. We've read this before. He was born into the darkness of Roman oppression. But when he showed up, he told everybody that the kingdom of heaven was here. It arrived, and he instructed the people, those living under the thumb of Roman rule, foreign leaders serving foreign gods to live in light of the mysteriously present future and to allow that mysteriously present future to reshape and redefine their present. That's what's happening. That's actually like the entire point of the Sermon on the Mount. It is a political document. And its message, when you sum it all up, is love God and love neighbor. And so followers of Jesus, as we wrestle through the, the texts that are given to us, this Bible, 
the primary thing that we're being called to is a politic of love, which is wild, right? It's otherworldly. And it's like, it's like, that doesn't work. And you're right, it doesn't work. It doesn't work, at least in the sense that we believe things ought to work. But it does work. Because the reality is, it is a politic of love that crushed the enemy when Jesus died upon a cross. And that's what he's calling us to embody. That hum humility, that self-giving love for God and for neighbor. And that's good news. And that's the stuff when, when that people will kind of look at us and be like, what's your deal? Like, you seem different. And, and, and then it's the opportunity to give a reason for the hope that's within us, right? It matters, right? How we function, it does matter. Let's, let's look at verse 7. It says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The text says that the increase of his government, end of peace, and that peace, it's that shalom peace, that all-encompassing peace. He says there will be no end. And then we learn here that the child born in verse 6 is the one seated upon David's throne, a throne that sends out justice and righteousness from when? From this time and forevermore. Isaiah is arguing that both the reality of this coming child and the peace of his never-ending kingdom, that they are mysteriously present in the lives of the people of Judah even as they await their destruction. For those of us on this side of the coming of Christ, his death and his resurrection, how much more can we rest in the mysteriously present reality of the peace of his never-ending kingdom? And how much more must we allow our imaginations, our lives, the way we treat our neighbors to be redefined and reshaped by that mysteriously present yet future coming kingdom? This is the beauty and wonder of what we remember and look forward to during this season of Advent. The birth of the child promised in Isaiah 6, Emmanuel, God with us. The word who became flesh and dwelt among us. That story, the one Isaiah proclaimed to the people of Judah, it changed the world. Heaven came down. But heaven didn't simply come down. He walked among us. He entered into our story. He faithfully loved God and neighbor. And then he gave himself for us on the cross. But the story didn't end there. Three days later, Jesus rose from the grave. And it was in that moment, this is so important, in that moment of resurrection, when new life was breathed into his lungs, that the latter time of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, broke its way into creation. The old is gone, the new has come. The future new creation is mysteriously present because God has ushered it in through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 
He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, galley of the nation, so that now those of us who have entrusted ourselves to Christ, we who once walked in darkness, who were dead in our trespasses and sins, on us light has shined. The oppressor who has enslaved humanity with a yoke of sin and death, he's been crushed. Why? Because the zeal of the Lord of hosts has done it. Because the zeal of the Lord of hosts has done it. But there's more. There's more. Because not only have we been set free from the yoke of sin and death, we've also been set free unto a life and imagination radically redefined and reshaped by the mysteriously present future of God's kingdom. A life where we can love our neighbors, love our enemies, those who we might consider other. A kingdom where peace has no end, justice and righteousness reign forevermore. See, the thing about the gospel, and we talk about this often, is that Paul doesn't just refer to the gospel as peace between us and God. It's so much more than that. It is absolutely peace between us and God. But Ephesians chapter 2 actually makes it so abundantly clear that not only have we been reconciled unto God, but we've also been reconciled with one another. And so it doesn't become anymore. It can't be us versus them. It just absolutely cannot be us versus them. We cannot be a people marked by that. Because that is an anathema to the gospel. It's, it's an accursed to the gospel when we live our lives as us versus them. In fact, I'm, I'm reading this book right now called Biblical Critical Theory. It's a beautiful book. And, and, he's, and he's talking about sin. And, and he's discussing the idea of sin that what it does is it actually levels the playing field. And, and he cites Dietrich Bonhoeffer who Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you know anything about him, he was a German theologian during the time of, of, of the Nazi rule in Germany, and, and he was pushing back against what was going on in Nazi Germany. And he eventually got killed by the Nazis for his positions. And, and he said, while in prison, probably pretty shortly before he was executed, he said something to the effect, and I'm going to paraphrase this, but that if we can look at the evil in this world and not see that there's probably a little bit of that reigning in us, then we are fooling ourselves. And he said that while in, I don't know if he was in a concentration camp or a prison camp, whatever he was. You guys, you guys catch what he's saying? And so right there, that just obliterates this whole us versus them thing. There's no one in this room that is better than the other. It's not how it works. It's just not. And the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the thing that we're celebrating, that we're anticipating, that is mysteriously present and we're called to live in light of, that is reshaping and redefining our imaginations, the way we function, the way we live, the way we love, is that it gives us peace with God and it says that the dividing wall of hostility between men and women has been obliterated. 
So that now there's peace horizontally as well. If the gospel that we are holding to does not carry both of those things, then it's not the gospel of the scriptures. You cannot have one without the other. That's good news. That's good news. And all of us are benefactors of it because somebody who was a Christian at one point reached out to you and told you this story who wasn't a Christian at that point. And so in their brain, they didn't see us versus them at that point. They saw, here's someone who I used to be just like and probably still am a little bit. And I want to tell them this beautiful story of the coming of God in Christ and how he lived faithfully and how he loved faithfully and how he died and how he rose again three days later and how he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. That is such good news. The future has to reshape and redefine our present. It has to. It has to. That's what Isaiah was, was, was calling them to. That's what hope is. That's what hope is. We are functioning and living as though that future is our reality today. And that future, if you're curious about what it's supposed to look like, read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and it lays it out for us. That's our political manifesto. That's where we're heading this Advent season. And that's good, good news. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we love you with all of our hearts. Help us, Lord. Help us to have eyes where we cannot see, Lord God. Help us to not pit ourselves against others. Help us to recognize the beautiful reality of, of the kingdom of heaven, that it is made up of every tribe, tongue, nation, Lord God. That in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, Lord God. That we are all one in Christ, Father. And help us to extend the hope of the kingdom. Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, Lord, that has not yet experienced the, the wonder and beauty of your salvation, of your grace, Lord, I pray today would be the day of salvation. Father, I pray that if there's anyone in this room right now who is bearing a weight they cannot bear, that today would be the day that they, they, they speak up and tell us, Lord God, so that we can help shoulder it with them. I pray for anyone that is struggling under the, the shame and guilt of, of frustrating sin and temptation, Lord, that today they would experience that in Christ there is no condemnation and that they don't have to walk with that shame. That you are, in fact, pouring out your grace in a superabounding way when we struggle. Father, help us to know that truth. Help us to walk in that truth. Help us to live in light of the mysteriously present future. God, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.